good to have everyone here today. The love of God, the love of God, how he loves us. That ties in very well into what I'm going to speak to you today about. Again, we miss our pastor. He's on vacation. You know, pastors need rest and recuperation from time to time. We don't like to give them rest, but they they need it. So, and I'm, I'm glad that they can take some time off and recuperate. Also, for the children here, usually I'm involved in Sunday school. You're just going to have to bear with listening to an adult sermon, and I'll try to keep it engaged so that you can 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 get something out of it as well. I know your attention span is is limited. I have three kids, seven, five, and a two-year-old. They are in Texas right now. They're also on vacation. Someone has to work. Um, I guess it's me. I guess it's me. But again, it's great to have each and every one of you here today. Just in case you didn't get a chance to meet me, my name is Tim. Um, I'm involved in different parts of Vertical. I just like to be involved in God's God's house in any way I can be involved. I want to talk today about true worship. True worship. The scripture text I want to read from is John 4:24. Give you a chance to turn to it. It's also going to be up in the screen here. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, I'm going to go through and read a number of verses, so you're going to have to bear with me. We're going to do a a preaching, part teaching, part preaching. Now, a few months ago, I... I preached on something similar. So if you were here, it's about four months ago, you're going to remember a lot of this. Well, maybe. You know how you, you eat on a daily basis usually, right? Maybe three meals at least, maybe fewer than that, maybe more, a few snacks here and there. Now, if you were to go back in time, you don't quite remember what you ate probably the Monday a month ago, right? You probably don't. For the most part, you know you ate, you got the nourishment you needed to survive that day to give you the energy that you needed for that day, but for the most part, you do not remember what you ate. Now, there are certain times where you're going to have a special occasion, maybe you're going to a nice restaurant, a fine dining experience, where you're going to remember what you ate. But those are few and far between in most cases. Now, for the most part, you want to enjoy what you're eating. So the same thing when the preacher comes up here, he's going to talk about something, and probably by the next week, you probably don't even remember what the preacher spoke about. I guarantee you the preacher does because he put in a lot of time. It's kind of like the the chef. He put a lot of time in making that meal. He's going to know what he's presenting and remember the full details of it. But you, on the other hand, Just know that you ate, right? But that's the most important part is that you ate and that you got the nutrients that you needed for that day, right? And the same thing with coming to the house of God. We're listening to the sermon and hopefully it's meeting the need for you that day and that week. Now, with that said, 
bear with me. We're going to go into John chapter 4, and we're going to talk to, we're going to talk about the Samaritan woman. Now, I want to lay this groundwork again and kind of go uh, through this, kind of set the scene here. In this day and age, there in Jesus' time, there was three distinct territories. There was Galilee in the north, there was Samaria in between, and there was Judea in the south. So Jesus, if you see here, he was in Galilee, and he wanted to travel to Judea. Now, the Jews and the Samaritans, which Samaritans lived in Samaria, they did not get along with each other. The Jews were very prejudiced against the Samaritans because the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jews, half-Gentiles. So instead of going through Samaria to go to Judea or go through to Galilee, whichever way you were going to, they would cross the Jordan on one side, completely bypass Samaria, and get to the other side of the Jordan and cross over. It basically made their journey twice as long instead of three days to six days. The Jewish people just could not stand the Samaritans. Well, Jesus, it says in Scripture, must go through Samaria. So those are the few details that you may miss when it says he must go through Samaria. Why does Scripture say that? Well, Jesus traveled through Samaria. Again, I'm not going to tell the whole story again. And then he, he's, he's traveling from the morning on, and he gets into Samaria about noonday, the heat of the day, and he arrives at a well, and he sits down because he's tired. He's, he's human. He has human um, restraints. He's tired. He's thirsty. And so he sits at this well, and here comes a Samaritan woman. So we're going to start in John 4 and 10. Jesus asks her to give him a drink. Now, the unusual thing here is that she's traveling all by herself, in the middle of the day. Usually women would go together to the well during the cooler part of the day. But we'll find out maybe more about why. The Samaritan woman said to him, verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, instead of answering her directly, Jesus focuses her attention to her need. In verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is saying the real amazing thing here is that you didn't ask me for water. Instead, I did. You should have been the one, if you knew who you were talking to, ask me for water. But the woman doesn't quite comprehend who she's talking to. She doesn't quite comprehend what's going on because she's limited by her own carnal self. In verse 11, the woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, it's not that I can give you water without a bucket. It's that I can give you water that will take your thirst away forever. But not only that, and here's where we're trying to get to, because we already talked about Jesus talking to her about the living water, but here's where it's bringing into this other lesson, so to say, 
it will fulfill your thirst forever, but it will also spring up up into you eternal life to yourself. Her reply in verse 15, the woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You have to see her situation here. She is a woman limited to her, uh, her choices. She's constrained to her choices. And again, we're going to get there. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. But she doesn't want to have to travel outside of her village to get water here again in the heat of the day. So she's thinking in her confined limitations of, okay, give me this water. I never have to worry about doing this again. That's great. It sounds great. Again, she's not quite understanding what God is, what Jesus is saying. So he takes it a step further in verse 16. Jesus said, go call your husband and come here. In verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The saying is, the quickest way to the heart is through a wound. Jesus was tired of her not understanding what he was trying to say to her. So he says, I know the wound that is in your life. I know the sensitive part of your life. I'm going to touch it right now so we can direct this to where I'm trying to go. He touches that wound, and she feels it. She feels that sensitivity. Why does Jesus reveal this part of her life? In John 3.20, you don't need to turn there. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Concealed sin is like leprosy. Leprosy of the skin basically eliminates any feeling you have on the skin, so it's easy for you to re-injure yourself and get more wounds and get infections, and the, and the disease grows. Sin is the same thing. It basically, if you conceal it, it grows worse and worse, and your soul becomes deteriorated, and you're losing out on eternal life because it's not being addressed. But Jesus said, the way I can reach you is I'm going to address the sin in your life, and it's going to feel uncomfortable, but that's the only way that you're going to be made whole. Now watch as she steers away the conversation. She doesn't like the feeling of this conviction. In verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She never said he was right. He just said, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet and that you knew that I had five husbands and the one that I have is not my husband. In verse 20, so instead of, instead of addressing her conviction, uh, let's talk about something religious. There's this controversy I want to talk about. Um, our fathers, in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Here's finally where we're getting to the place I want to go to about worship. It's interesting, though, that here Jesus doesn't go back to her adultery. He doesn't mention it again. He takes her question where she's trying to divert the the conversation away from her conviction, and he uses this to expound further, and he goes, okay, you want to go that way? That's fine with me. I already knew you were going to do that. So he never goes back to the issue that's at hand. He just continues with the conversation. He already knows that he's touched that sensitive part of her life. So Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's not about location. 
It's not about location that makes an act of worship authentic. Worship is not merely an external act that you can accomplish by going to a place. I'm glad that you all are here today, but this is one act of worship, but it's not the entirety of the act of worship. She's arguing because the Samaritans believe that this certain mountain was where you should worship, and the Jews knew that you should worship in Jerusalem. But it's not location, and Jesus is about to change the whole scene. And, of course, we know when he dies on the cross and he is raised from the dead that everything changes, but he's predicting the future of what's going to happen. He said, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Worship is first and foremost an experience of the heart. Prayer without heart is vain. Songs without heart are vain. Confessions, sermons, liturgies, whatever, that don't come from the heart do not reach God. Worship foremost has to be from the heart. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. I'm almost done with all this reading. Thanks for bearing with me. We just have a couple of verses. But here he he gets to the point of, you Samaritans, you take the five books of Moses. They only took the five books of Moses from the Old Testament. But not only that, they took their their own version of the five books of Moses. He's saying here, You worship what you do not know. You don't know the whole scripture. You're wrong. It's not arrogance to tell someone they're in the wrong when they're in a lie. It's love. If you see someone hurting themselves, if you see someone in the wrong and you correct them, it's not arrogance. It's love. He's trying to get her back to the root of the issue. And he tells her, you don't understand. But the Jews, he says, we worship What we know, you need truth to be able to worship God properly. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We're going to get back to this. It's still an amazing story, and I think you probably could talk about this scripture over and over again and glean other things from it, but it's an amazing story. Again, we're going to get back to it, but God is seeking true worshipers. In our V group a couple weeks ago, we talked about this, so the V group that's, that's heard some of this is just going to have to bear through this with their incredible knowledge on the subject. But anyway, God is seeking true true worshipers. God created the world for his glory, everything in it, from the trees, from from the oceans, from the stars in the sky, all of that was for God's glory. We ourselves are made in the image of God for his glory. But God is seeking worshipers who will bring him glory, not just on Sunday, but every day through all of their activities. That is worship. That is worship. 
every day in our activities. We cannot properly worship God on Sundays if we're not worshiping him throughout the week. You cannot just come to the house of God and expect that God is going to receive you if day in and day out you just lived whatever life you wanted to live. True worship takes consecration. It takes heart. The fact that God seeks true worshipers implies that there are false worshipers. He says it very clearly. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers. So the fact that he says true worshipers says that there must be false worshipers. Well, of course, we can say false worshipers are those who worship false gods, right? But we can also say that false worshipers are Christians who worship God in a way that doesn't honor God. You can memorize Scripture all day. You can have all these recitations. You can have these creeds. But if it isn't from the heart... If it isn't coming from your innermost being in a genuine way, God does not receive it. It's not only worshiping false gods, but it's worshiping in a false way. God requires true worshipers. And we must worship in spirit and in truth. The true worshipers worship him in spirit and in truth. I just said that, but repeat it again. To worship in spirit without truth is to worship false gods. To have spirit without truth is to worship false gods. To worship in truth without spirit is dead religion. You have to have a balance of the two. In scripture here, going back, God is a spirit. He has no flesh. He doesn't have flesh and bones. He's everywhere at all times. He sees everything. And so the way that we have to worship him is in spirit. In Matthew 15, 8, I want to just mention this. To worship in spirit is to worship from the heart or within. In Matthew 15 and 8, Jesus addresses this and he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. The most important factor in becoming a worshiper is to guard and cultivate your heart for God. It is part emotional to worship in spirit, but it's not the whole criteria. There is an emotional element, and sometimes I think we miss that. But if it's only through truth and in your brain, and never comes out of your emotion, even though it doesn't just stand on your emotions alone, then it's not worship. Your worship has to, at some point, touch your emotions. If you see through all scripture, even if you were to translate the words, if you were to look at the root words of thanksgiving and blessing and worship, they all have physical root meanings. Thanksgiving is lifting the hands. Um, Worship, correct me if I'm wrong here, worship is, I believe, laying prostrate. I could be wrong. You have to look it up. But, um, but all of them do have physical root meanings from the Hebrew that shows the way that we worship. So it is part emotional. The way I, I like it explained is 
I love my wife, right? Right. Um, so, but my, my love for her is not based off a of feeling. Don't misinterpret this, all right? It's, it's not rooted, I should say, in feeling, but it's rooted in commitment to her. There's feeling there. So don't go back and when my wife returns, say, well, he doesn't have any feelings for you. That's not what I'm saying. My relationship with her is not built on feeling alone, but commitment to her. But when I think about all that she means to me, I feel love for her. And I ought to express that love in some outward manner that shows that I love her. If you're a husband... You have to show your wife you love her in some form or fashion. You cannot just say, I love you, but none of your actions, none of your emotions show it. Yes, Zach. Yes, you have to. You have to. The same thing with God. We cannot say, I love you, but nothing external or none of our emotions are tied to it. So spirit is required. Let's move along. We don't have all day here. We should worship in truth additionally. Where do we get truth? It's through the word of God. If you're not in the word of God, day in, day out, you don't have any truth. The truth that you get is from God's word. For example, to worship in truth means that we worship him for all that he is as revealed in all scripture. We worship him for his love but also for his justice and righteousness. We worship him for his kindness, but also for his severity. We worship him for his sovereignty and for his grace. We worship him when he gives, but we also worship him when he takes away. We worship him for all his ways, but the only way that we can understand that is by being in his word and understanding truth, the truth of who he is. Praise God. The Bible is our only guide for worshiping in truth. Worship in spirit flows out of worship in truth. Feeding your mind on the truth of God moves your spirit to praise and love God. We need the truth and the spirit together to properly worship God. Praise God. Praise God. We're concluding here. But not so quickly, not so quickly. You know, there, there's a, a saying, a good, a, a good sermon doesn't need to be long. A bad sermon ought not to be long. <laughs> so we're getting to a conclusion here, but I still have a few things I want to say. Number one, establish a daily time alone with God in the word and prayer. I cannot overemphasize this. You cannot just come to God's house and expect that to be true worship if you're not worshiping with your life day in and day out. And number two, eliminate all the garbage from the world that hinders your growth in worshiping God. Nothing in the world is going to draw you closer to God. I'm not saying everything in the world is bad, but you have to understand nothing from Hollywood saying, hey, I want you to get closer to God. Right. Sorry, it's not there. I watch movies. I'm not saying anything wrong with movies, but when you're in that realm, you have to understand that they have no...
no desire for you to be closer to God. So when you look at your time spent watching TV shows, movies, or whatnot, video games, I like video games, um, but you have to look at your time and say, am I spending time with God or are all these other things taking up my time? In John 3, 6, Jesus connects God's spirit and our spirit in a remarkable way. That which is born of the spirit in spirit is spirit. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Otherwise, what he's saying here is your spirit, until it's born again with God's spirit, is dead. When we go back to the Samaritan woman, she couldn't quite grasp what, what Jesus was saying because her spirit was dead. She only saw things in the carnal realm. But until God's spirit, which he's talking about living water, that he was offering her to fill her life, until she had that, her, her life would not be open to understand what God was trying to say. So when Jesus says that true worshipers worship in spirit, he means that true worship only comes from those that are made alive and sensitive by the touch of the Holy Spirit. Your spirit has to be made alive for you to truly be able to worship God. I want to go back to the verse 14, John 4, verse 14. He says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What did Jesus mean? Well, in John 7, 37 through 39, Jesus stood up and proclaimed, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit which those who believed in him were to receive. These two scriptures speak of a drinking in and a flowing out a drinking in, and a flowing out. The Holy Spirit satisfies your thirst, but not only that. He wasn't just offering the Samaritan woman eternal life, satisfying her thirst forever, but he says it will also make you a fountain of life. I don't know about you, but this story is incredible. I'll go back to it again. You see this Samaritan woman, she was married five times, and the man that she was with was not her husband. Of all people in Scripture, Jesus said, I have to go through Samaria to reach this one woman who by all means wasn't religious, who had, no, who had made horrible decisions throughout her whole life. People probably called her certain names, which you probably know what I'm trying to say. She was in a horrible condition, an outcast. The other, woman in the, the other women in society didn't want to deal with her. They didn't know if she was going to steal their husbands from, from them. I mean, even in now, even today, if you were to meet someone that was married five times, you're like, well, there's something wrong with you. And this is back in Jesus' day. This is an extreme, an anomaly. It's incredible when you think about it. But she's in Scripture because God saw her. I don't care where you've been or what situation has brought you here or what choices you've made. The amazing thing is God presented to her eternal life. 
Jesus kept the word and the spirit together. In John 14, 26, he says, The spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. We're going right back to the spirit and truth. The spirit and truth. The work of the spirit of Christ is to make the word of Christ clear and satisfying to the soul. When we come to Christ to drink, what we drink is truth, not dead, powerless facts. The Spirit and the Word unite to quench our thirst and make us a fountain of life. Praise God. Not only does He give us eternal life, which is in in itself incredible, but we are then a fountain of life for others. He's presenting to her eternal life. But not just that. He says, I know what you've done. I'm going to give you eternal life. I'm presenting that to you. But there's hope for you to be a blessing to others. What an incredible story. What an incredible story. Let's all stand. You may feel so dead and so sinful that you don't see how you can be of any use. Or you may feel like a failed Christian where where you just cannot get everything right. But God has so graciously, graciously shown something like this. The hope that a worldly sensually minded unspiritual harlot from Samaria can become not just saved but a fountain of life she can be used to give life you can be used to give life oh hallelujah hallelujah thank you God thank you for your grace praise God worship If it doesn't change you, is not true worship. Worship that does not change you is not true worship. The body, mind, spirit, and emotions should all be laid on the altar of worship. To worship in spirit and in truth. I ask that if if everyone would please come to the front and gather around here. Let's spend some time in prayer talking to God. We we all want to, I hope that's your